Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us your grace to be about your work, not to just be standing in, um, in activity, but God, that we as the church would be about your work. And we do thank you for the Spirit, God, that enables us to speak words of truth, to understand the words of truth from your word. Make us faithful witnesses right here in Greer and Duncan and Moore and Reedville and Greenville and Spartanburg. Make us faithful, God, and make us faithful to be partners so that the ends of the earth can hear of your good news. Thank you for being the God that is globally minded so that you can receive glory from all parts of the world for you deserve it, God. Put it on our minds each day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to Genesis chapter 9. It's been a while since we've been in Genesis, our verse-by-verse study through this book, which is fitting, actually, for the amount of time to symbolize where we left off. Noah was on the boat, on the ark with his family, and they waited until the flood would go away and then they could start life again. So it's fitting that it's been a while since we've been in Genesis. Last time we were in Genesis, the flood has come. God has wiped out all of creation except for one family. The flood is over and life on earth begins once again. Now, rather than reading this entire text at one time like I normally would, I'm going to today do a little something different. I'm going to work through it in small sections, read small sections at a time, and work through it as we go together. So let's start in Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. I'm going to stop there for the moment. Immediately, we see three sons leave the ark, and suddenly, the perspective goes global. So, I wonder if you catch that in the text. We're told of these three sons that all the people of the whole earth were dispersed from them. And then if you skip down to chapter 10 of Genesis, chapter 10 gives us the descendants that come from these three sons that were dispersed. So it would be completely natural if we were reading this text to read verses 18 and 19 that talk about Noah and his three sons and all the people of the world came from them. And then it goes directly into chapter 10, giving their descendants that came. But that's not what the text does. I wonder if you noticed that. Instead of staying at a high bird's eye view of what's happening here with the nations and the descendants of Noah, instead, Moses, the author of Genesis, has one last narrative to share with us about Noah. And Noah probably wishes that he didn't have to share this one. The curvature of this text is like this. It starts out in the big focus on the nations, the descendants of Noah, but then it dips down for a second to tell us a story about Noah and his sons before it then goes back up into the clouds at the bird's eye view of the nations. And we read our Bibles and I hope you ask questions like, why would it do that? Why does the text do that? 
Well, I hope to show that the unique outline of this text is meant to show us the origin of the nations, the division of the nations, and in light of those two things, the church's call concerning the nations. This text is very much globally minded. It's meant to remind us as a local church, just right here in our small community of South Carolina, what are we here for and what are we trying to accomplish? So this morning, I want to encourage you, it can, it can be really easy to think about what's going on in my family, in my life, at my work, in my community, but God is so much more global than that, and the church is so much more global than that. And this text reminds us. So first, notice the origin of the nations. So look with me in verse 20 of chapter 9. I'll continue reading the text. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. I'll stop here for a moment. In many ways, post-flood is a fresh start for humanity. You think about it, the flood is gone, they have the covenant of God that he will not flood the earth again, the rebels have been washed away, life now begins fresh again, but not this time with Adam, but now it starts fresh with Noah. And at this point in the text, we may be tempted to think, maybe things will go better this time. Adam sinned and his descendants fell after him but Noah remember was called righteous and God wiped away the wickedness of the world and now it's going to start fresh with Noah and maybe he will do a better job than Adam and see the people remembered the curse that came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin they remembered how they took of the forbidden fruit and that God cursed and brought consequence for their sin but they also remembered God's promise Maybe you do from Genesis 3. You have the curse of God on the serpent. And he says that the seed of the serpent will battle the seed of the woman. But the promise was ultimately the seed of the woman would triumph. And so these people were constantly looking for the one to come through the line of the woman to triumph over evil. Remember when Noah was born in chapter 5, verse 29, we read he was born and his father said, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. See, they were looking for the promised one to come. So the flood is over and Noah is stepping off the ark and we might think maybe it's Noah. Maybe he's the chosen one in the fresh start of humanity. 
But Noah gets off the ark and we see an immediate comparison, not to God, but sadly to Adam. Catch this in the text. In the beginning, Adam is a keeper of the garden. In verse 20, we're told Noah is a man of the soil. He's a farmer. Adam was a gardener. In the beginning, Adam works the garden. In verse 20, we're told Noah plants a vineyard. Adam sinned by eating of the forbidden fruit and Noah sins, how? By indulging in the fruit of the vine. Adam hides in naked shame and where do we find Noah? Passed out in drunken shame. God covers Adam. Noah needs his sons to cover him. Any hopes that things will be different after the flood with Noah will be the, the big rescuer of the world, all those hopes are quickly lost. It is a fresh start, but they start exactly where they stopped. Sin is still very much present. I want to speak very briefly to the sin of Noah here. Noah's sin is not drinking the wine from the vine. Noah's sin was becoming drunk with the wine from the vine. And the text actually doesn't spend a lot of time here, but I do feel compelled to spend a short moments here just because of the prevalence of drunkenness in our society. In fact, I'll let another preacher take the sermon for a second. One pastor writes this, quote, drunkenness in itself deserves as its reward that they who deface the image of their heavenly father in themselves should become a laughingstock to their own children. Let us remember that when man by shameful abuse profane this noble and precious gift of God, God himself becomes the avenger. And let us know that Noah by the judgment of God has been set forth as a spectacle to be a warning to others that they should not become intoxicated by excessive drinking. And let us remember that if the Lord so grievously avenged the single transgression of Noah, he will prove an avenger no less severe against those who are daily intoxicated, end quote. Now before you think, well, there goes another Baptist harping on alcohol. Friends, that quote is from our dear Presbyterian brother, John Calvin. The intoxication of alcohol portrayed here in the text is only portrayed in one light. Sinful, shameful, deeply dishonoring to God. And we would be well warned today that if any of us partake in such drunken actions that we should tremble as we consider the fierce and swift judgment of God that comes upon Noah This should surprise us about Noah, shouldn't it? I mean, this is a man who's known for his righteousness. And now he is seen in drunkenness. We think, how does this happen to such a man? Well, perhaps he started to feel like other righteous men have felt. There's a principle for us all to take warning from here. The principle is no amount of godliness can justify any small amount of sin. 
You think about Noah and his context. He finds himself on a new earth. He's the patriarch ruler of the earth. He looks out and he sees this beautiful vineyard that he's planted. And it may be tempting to Noah to sit on his porch and to think, look what all I've done. God called me righteous and he wiped out everyone else. Look how hard I have worked. Look how much I've sacrificed for God. I spent years building an ark and people made fun of me the whole time. And now who's laughing? I have sacrificed so much. I can loosen up a little bit. I can indulge myself a little bit. After all, I deserve it. I've given up so much. Brothers and sisters, do not use the blessing and prosperity of God as a means to indulge yourself in the pleasures of the flesh. Growing in godliness does not extend our leash toward sin. We must not have an attitude that slowly creeps in to think things are going my way. Everything seems to be blessed. Everything seems to be going well. I can loosen up a little bit. I deserve it. You know, I've worked hard. I've sacrificed a lot. I deserve this. Just a little bit won't hurt. There have been many a men in ministry that have dipped their toes in the cool water of sin and found themselves drowning in it the next. So don't go there. There's no amount of godliness, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of pain ever justifies our sin. And we may be tempted to say, if you only knew what I've been through, if you only knew the pain that I had suffered, you would know how I got here. And listen, brothers and sisters, that is a lie. It is a lie from Satan that helps you justify a sin that is never justifiable before God. Don't go there. A reputation in godliness takes a lifetime to build, but a moment to wreck. So Noah's sinful actions are surprising to us, but also surprising, the text here actually spends more time on the transgression of Ham, his son. And Noah's lying out, he's laid out, passed out in uncovered, shameful drunkenness in verse 22 says, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. So here's an important question. What did Ham do wrong? Well, let's start with what we know for sure in the text. Verse 22 tells us Ham saw his father's nakedness. It also tells us he told his brothers. And verse 24 indicates that Ham did something. Verse 24 says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now that language in verse 24, known what his youngest son had done to him, has led some people to say that Ham has committed some sort of sexual assault against his father in his drunkenness. However, I would be cautious there. I, I don't believe the text gives us enough detail to make that conclusion in confidence. So if it's not that, what did Ham do? He shamed his father. Ham saw his father in a shameful position 
and he dwelled on it and he spread it around. Listen to what Habakkuk 2, 15 and 16 says. This is eerily similar to what may be happening here. It says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame and not glory. See, what seems to be the situation here, Ham goes in, perhaps even at first by accident, and he sees his father and his nakedness. But now he's mocked him, he's embarrassed him, he's humiliated his father, he's, he's spread the dirty details to the brothers, he's gossiped about it, he's dishonored his reputation, he's now has tainted the view in the minds of Shem and Japheth of their father. They would have never had to imagine their father in this condition until Ham told them. And now all of a sudden they're forced to see their dad in this light. The situation appears to be Ham goes in and probably shockingly finds righteous Noah passed out. He's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe my dad's like this. And he runs to his brothers. He's like, guys, you'll never believe how I just found dad. Like, righteous dad is just wasted. Like he is, you got to come see it. Sometimes we Westerners need help in grasping the grave offense that it is to shame a parent. This offense is so much bigger than we know. In our context, so often, children, kids, adult kids just spout off at parents in total disrespect and shame. And we have a hard time grasping the full effect of the consequence of that. What is the first of the Ten Commandments that's not specifically centered on God? So you have, don't have any other gods before me. You have no carved images. Do not misuse the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy, what God has kept. And what's the very first one that doesn't directly deal with the relationship to God, but directly deals with someone else's relationship? Honor your father and mother. Ham doesn't honor his father. He humiliates him. I hope you can feel the dishonoring that's happening in this scene. It was certainly Noah's sin that got him there in his drunken stupor, but Ham indulged in the sharing of it. See, there's something about sinful nature that we want to hide our own sin, but if we catch someone else's sin, we want to share it. Why? Makes us feel good. We say, you know, hey, you, you didn't hear this from me, but did you hear about so-and-so? Did you see? I can't believe that they would do it. I can't believe that happened. He used to be so righteous. How did he fall so low? I can't believe. Did you hear about that? We hide our own sin, but we are ready to proclaim others. Now notice Shem and Japheth do the exact opposite of their brother Ham. Whereas Ham looked on his father's nakedness, the emphasis in the text on Shem and Japheth is that they did not see their father's nakedness. And this is why I think the key issue here was that he shamed his father in, in looking on his nakedness because the emphasis on the other two brothers is they did not see his nakedness. 
Instead of spreading more shame, Shem and Japheth do what they can to end the shameful situation as soon as possible. Look at verse 23. They took a garment so that they couldn't see behind them. They walked backwards into the room. They kept their face turned away. And the end of verse 23 says emphatically, they did not see their father's nakedness. Friends, it is always honoring to God to resolve matters of shame if you can instead of indulging in the spreading of it. See, it's easy to look from a distance and laugh at someone else's sin. Teenagers, maybe you, how many times have you been at school or online and you've looked at someone else's folly from a distance and laughed with everyone? How popular it is to talk about the party this past weekend and man, did you hear about so-and-so? Man, they just wasted so much. They drank so much. They just part. They lived it up. Can you believe they did that? And we're all just, hey, hi, ho, ho. It's, it's so funny. How easy it is to look from a distance at someone else's folly. In these moments, remember, it is honoring to God to snuff it out instead of spreading it around. A shameful situation of Noah, shameful situation of Ham, turns into a big problem for the rest of the family. And what do I mean? You may be thinking at this point in the sermon, I thought this was a sermon about the nations. And so far, this feels really specific to Ham and Noah. Well, here's where the plot twist comes. Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, and what do you expect him to do? We expect him to confront Ham immediately. How dare you do this? How dare you do that, right? We're confronting his son, and he does, but there's a twist to this that's surprising. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan? A servant of servants shall be, he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Who is Canaan? And more importantly, why is he being cursed for his father's sin? And what's that all about? See, all of a sudden, this text goes from a localized incident between Noah and his one son, Ham, to now bringing Canaan into the picture, which means the consequence for Ham now reaches into future generations and future nations. It's not just Ham's problem. That Moses wants us to know, to see very clearly, one day the nations are going to be scattered all over the world. We see it. We live in it. They're going to be divided all over the world. And Moses wants us to know that as the nations are divided in hostility, fighting over who's going to serve the other, he wants us to know it started right here when Ham shamed his father. And as a consequence, Canaan was cursed. Now, if you're reading the text carefully, you can see that Canaan has already been emphasized in the text. In verse 18, when Moses is introducing the three sons of Noah, 
You see in your text, he makes a parenthetical note after Ham. He says, Noah's sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but Ham was the father of Canaan. He wants us to see that. He doesn't do that with the other sons. And then in verse 22, when he's describing what Ham did and seeing the nakedness of his father, he says, and Ham, the father of Canaan, by the way, saw the nakedness of his father. Why is he doing that? He's drawn emphasis to us. Canaan is emphasized so that we take note of what's happening here. Moses is highlighting Canaan. But still the question is, why is Canaan being cursed for his father's sin? Maybe text like Exodus 34 comes to mind that mentions God not clearing the guilty and that the iniquity of the fathers would be visited upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Maybe there's something there. One writer quotes, a parent's sin is often become, our parent's sin often becomes the child's stumbling block. It's like the, the parent who rushes to the pastor in desperation. I've just, I've just caught my teenager. He's looking at something he shouldn't look at. I just, I don't know how this happened. I don't know, what am I supposed to do? How did we ever get here? And it turns out mom's reading Fifty Shades of Grey and dad's looking at the swimsuit Sports Illustrated edition. Parents don't ever think that your ways have no effect on your children. Parents... It's your lifestyle today enabling patterns for your child's lifestyle tomorrow. The sin of one generation is often the canvas by which the next generation begins with. Ham has sinned, no doubt. But there are qualities of Ham that will eventually shape the qualities of Canaan and the history of Canaan bears this out. But I believe the ultimate reason behind the handing out of this curse to Canaan is prophetic. Well, what do you mean? This only makes sense if you believe that God has already planned all of history. See, God is not reacting to history as it happens. Instead, God is interacting in history as he has planned it to happen. Isaiah 46, 9 says of God, for I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It's so interesting that God says declaring the end from the beginning and not the beginning from the end. Why? Because God is able to declare those things at the end before the beginning even starts because his purposes will stand according to the counsel of his will. Noah's curse on Canaan is simply a peace positioned by God in the predestined portal of history. A peace that is going to accomplish his greater purposes. What do we know about the Canaanites in Scripture? They play a critical piece in the storyline of Scripture, in God's redemptive plan. And here Noah says that Canaan is cursed. He'll be a servant to his brothers. And years later, what do we see? Joshua 17, 13 says, now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. This is the fulfillment of the prophetic word spoken by Noah right here, hundreds of years before. 
Ham was absolutely the guilty one for his sin committed against Noah. However, when Noah hands out the distribution of judgment, he issues a prophetic word that singles out Canaan, a descendant of Ham, who will serve in God's redemptive plans in ways that they could not even fully realize when he said it, but will then play out in the history of the Bible. Now, we may ask at this point, why did God single out Canaan? And there were other brothers he could have ch chosen. Why Canaan? And a similar question has been asked before throughout history. Sounds something like this. How is this fair? Now, no doubt there's mystery here. But there's a lot of help from the Bible as well. I believe a, a quote from Calvin here is helpful. He says, quote, let not our curiosity here indulge itself too freely. Let us remember that the judgments of God are called a great deep for who has been his counselor and that it would be a degrading thing for God before whose throne we all must stand one day to be subjected to our judgments. He chooses whom he sees good that he may show forth in them an example of his grace and kindness. Others he appoints to a different end that they may be proofs of his anger and severity. Here, although the minds of men are blinded, let every one of us, conscious of his own infirmity, learn rather to ascribe praise to God's justice than to plunge with insane audacity into the profound abyss. In other words, God's ways are higher than our ways. And we trust that what he says is just is in fact just. See, Christians are a people of this book, which means we start with this book. We don't primarily start with our feelings, our own logic, our own opinions. We start with what does God say in the book? Am I going to believe it? We can trust that what God says is just is in fact just, that we don't set the definition now, this narrative ends by telling us that Noah, like all men, verse 28, gives way to death. He dies. And very clearly, after the flood, sin has continued, cursing for sin has continued, and death has come as a result, just like everyone before. If we think the flood would fix all things, we were wrong, because the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continues. This is the origin story of the nations. From these three sons, all the peoples of the earth are dispersed. Two are blessed. One is cursed. Now let's watch them divide. This is the second point of our sermon. This is what chapter 10 shows us. First, we see the origin of the nations, and now we're going to see the dividing of the nations. Chapter 10 has been called in Genesis a table of nations. Moses here records the descendants that flow from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He starts with Japheth. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphat, and Tagarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim, 
From these, the coastland people spread in the lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. I'll stop here. I'm not gonna, don't worry, I'm not gonna go through every name in detail. Although that is an interesting study, there are plenty of good commentaries that can show you each name and how each name has just trail after trail throughout the Bible of how they're connected throughout the storyline of Scripture. I'm not gonna focus on each name. I'm gonna focus on a few of them and ultimately show the, the cumulative effect of these nations that are dividing. He starts with Japheth and gives his descendants. They're given the least amount of tension in the text, probably because they appear the least amount in connection to Israel over her history. But next we have the descendants of Ham. And guys, bear with me with these names. Verse six, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rehamah, and Saptica. The sons of Rehamah, Sheba, and Dedan. The Cush, at Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first of the, on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Reason between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, Neptahim, Pathrusim, Castlehim, from whom the Philistines came, and Capthorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Latia. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their language, their lands, and their nations. Now remember, Ham's line is the curse line. And you think about the original audience here. Moses is writing for the Israelites, probably somewhere in the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land of what? Canaan. Think of some of the names that are listed in the line of Ham. It would make absolute sense to the Israelites. Yeah, this is definitely the curse line. Think about who we see. We see Egypt and who oppressed the Israelites into slavery, the Egyptians. And when they escape Egypt, what route does God lead them through? Not the shortest route through the land of the Philistines, also in the line of Ham. We see Nimrod, verse 8, describes him as earth's first mighty man, a mighty hunter. This probably means that he was the first one to think in terms of creating and controlling society according to earthly kingdoms. He was aggressive, ambitious, militant. His influence and power grew. He probably was the world's first tyrant ruler. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at the expanse of his kingdom in verse 10. Just listen to the big names. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He was likely the leader behind the Tower of Babel that we're gonna see next week. And what becomes of Babel? Babylon, who eventually captures Judah. 
Other names after Nimrod, Shinar, Assyria, who eventually captures Israel, Nineveh, the, the wicked city of Jonah's day. Also in Ham's line, we see Canaan, verse 15 and following, give his descendants. You have the Jebusites, Amorites, Hivites, all nations that Israel would be known to battle with. Also in the line of Canaan, there's no small mention. You have Sodom and Gomorrah who would become the measuring stick of society throughout history of who is a wicked nation. I mean, just in the line of Ham, we see a who's who nation who have tangled with Israel. You have the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, Canaanites, Amorites, Philistines. My goodness, it's clear that after the flood, righteousness did not fill the earth. Instead, the seed of the serpent filled the earth. Lastly, we have the descendants of Shem. Look in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpachshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arkpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazmapheth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Amael, Sheba, somebody give me relief, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the face of the earth after the flood. So just a quick observation here with Shem. You see Eber emphasized. He followed a son named Peleg. I'm sure he had a hard time in middle school. What is said of Peleg? He was named such because in his day, the earth was divided. His name actually means division, which shows that problems didn't just exist in the line of Ham. Problems were existing everyone. Everyone's divided. You think about this quick snapshot of Genesis 10 and these descendants. The record of chapter 10 shows us that Japheth's descendants are in the west. Ham's descendants are filled with villains. Shem even had people divided everywhere as well. Friends, this is a long way away from perfect fellowship with God in the garden. We have the nations of the world or originating from three sons. Ham's sin led cursing to future generations and here we see them divided, all still having the same bloodline, the sin of their first father, Adam, which we see as populated and diverse as the world is, sin is still the universal problem. So what should we conclude from all of this? I mean, surely God has other means for us, and he included this in the canon, other than just geographical lessons. Should God send another flood? Well, he's promised that he wouldn't do that. We've seen the origin of the nations We've seen the division of the nations and now consider the church's call concerning the nations. So in light of this text, here's the main point of the sermon. I saved it for very last. The nations who were divided 
by sin through the seed of the serpent are now being gathered by salvation through the seed of the woman. And this gathering is the mission of the church. The nations that were divided by sin through the seed of the serpent are being gathered by salvation through the seed of the woman. And that gathering is the mission of the church. To be able to see this, you have to think about this passage, how it fits into the overall context of the Bible. Yes, through sin, we see nations of the world divided in rebellion against God. The seed of the serpent is scattered everywhere. But mixed in with this is the seed of the woman. You see in the line of Shem comes a man eventually named Abraham. And starting with Abraham, we can see a very specific emphasis from God on rescuing the nations. Not just one line, but the nations represented just, I wish I could show every, I wish I could show this in every book of the Bible. Just do a quick snapshot of, listen to God's emphasis on the nations. He tells Abraham what? You are one man and one nation, one line, but through you, I'm going to make you a father to the multitude of the nations. Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And then fast forward hundreds of years, King David comes in the line of Abraham and King David writes things of God, such as Psalm where he says to God, of God, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Not just Israel, the nations and the ends of the earth your possession. Fast forward hundreds of years, who comes in the line of David? It's the promised one, Jesus Christ. And what were some things he said? Some of his very last words, go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. And then he sends the church to be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Why? Because God's ultimate goal. How does the Bible end? Revelation 7, 9 gives us a picture of the final day. Listen to this glorious picture. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. In Genesis, we see the nations divided and through the rest of the Bible, we see the nations being gathered so that one day the nations will be together worshiping the lamb who is worthy of that worship. This is the story of the Bible. This is the trajectory of history that these nations that are divided are now being gathered and the gathering is part of the mission of the church. Listen, in the Old Testament, you have God's chosen people and around them on all sides, they're surrounded by cursed nations and God says, be a light among the nations. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and he makes atonement for sin. He defeats the power of death. He gets rid of the curse for sinful people and offers life to anyone who would repent and believe. And then he commissions the church to go to the nations with the message of the gospel. This is how I want us to think about this as we close this morning. This is the call for us in our day. For centuries, Christians have preserved the message of the gospel They've discipled each other with the message of the gospel. They've strategized about how they can get the message of the gospel out. Listen, it's our turn. In 2021, it's our turn. 
And I get it can be daunting. It can have, we can sometimes think, you know, we're just, we're one church. We're in a small local church in one community. How are we ever supposed to do this? Well, here's an important thing to remember. God doesn't call Abner Creek to be the savior of the world. That's Jesus' job. God calls us to be faithful in the part that he has given us to start right here on Abner Creek Road and to expand from there. Church family, we are a local church, but we must never be satisfied merely with a local mentality. God never intended the church to turn inward. There are a lot of churches in preservation mode right now. That was never God's intention. I wanna challenge us all. Don't lose focus. Don't coast. Don't let up. The focus is not Abner Creek. It's not about us. It's not about our land, our buildings, our money, our history. The focus is, will we be faithful in our section of history to continue to spread the gospel as God has called every church to do? Will each of us look at our own time and our resources and our paychecks and say, God, I'm giving a blank check to you, a credit card with no limit to give you everything I have as you lead me, that I refuse to die a life where it was all about me. We have been given such a higher purpose. This is why our mission statement says, we exist to glorify God by proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ in order to make disciples, what? Of all nations. This text reminds us of God's design to start the nations, divide the nations, and ultimately gather the nations. This is the purpose of history. Genesis is just the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we can look at a text like this and we can just see name after name after name and it can feel so unattached to us, so out there and irrelevant for our lives. Father, I pray that you would not allow us to be a church that is content with inward thinking. Lord, you have planned all of history. You have planned good works for us to walk in. God, make us faithful to walk in them to be diligent about getting the gospel message to this local community, to be intentional about what partnerships we're going to take up and link arms with so that the gospel is continuing to go forward around the world. Keep us from being just simply, merely a local church. Make us a local church that's faithful to your global purpose. I pray in Christ's name, amen.